0: Good evening, Curry Hick Sage here. It is technically Friday morning, a little before 1 a.m. It's really late Thursday night, uh, March 27th or March 26th, depending on how you want to look at it. Here's the deal with this episode. I began the episode with a rather informal interview with Jay Burnham, last Voice of UMass Athletics, last Saturday. Then I cut an intro the fall, the next Sunday. Started doing an extensive mailbag that same day. Got 32 minutes into the mailbag. The audio was shoddy at points, and my kids started crying. Later in the week, Eli Sloven, friend of UMass Twitter, noted that he wanted to make his college announcement on the program. So I was like, you know what? I'll just push the episode off until he's ready to do that. We'll, f- we'll put Burnham, that, the intro, the mailbag cut the interview with sloven today or thursday rather that went well sent that over to bennett now i'm sending the second intro so that i can contextualize the first intro which notes all sorts of things about how it was it was five days ago and doesn't mention the sloven thing i'm not even going to send the mailbag now because otherwise it would be damn near three hours we'll post a mailbag later in the day probably when i get that together or the next day. I don't know. That's all I got. Enjoy the show. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to (laughs) Olean. Penn State was in the Atlantic (laughs) Panthers. Tired, Mark Whipple was a bad coach at UMass. Wired, Charlie Molnar was a bad coach at UMass. Inspired, (laughs) Kevin
1: Morris was a bad coach at UMass.
0: (laughs) Good afternoon. This is Curry Hicks Sage coming to you live from New York City. The throes of a global pandemic. It is Sunday, March twenty-second, two thousand twenty. Does it even really matter anymore? This should have been the final day of the second round of the NCAA tournament. We should be. We should have been sort of uh, midway through the first set of games and knowing. What the sweet 16 would look like by day's end, but alas, that was not going to be the case. And on today's episode, I talked to UMass play-by-play man, Jay Burnham. We actually cut the episode yesterday. I wanted to go back in time, what feels like ages ago, but was really only last week and kind of get his... Interpretation of events and kind of hear the play by play of what went down last week before UMass, uh, of course, was asked to leave the floor and never ended up playing. It's what would have been uh, its first conference tournament game against VCU at the Barclays Center. And so Jay does that. And then we just kind of got riffing. Um, It's a bit of a rambly episode, not as structured as some interviews I've done, but also if you're in need of a fix for UMass Hoops and just some speculation on next season and kind of our takes on the end of this year. This will hold you over. I think Jay and I had kind of vowed to do this again uh, over the next week or even a few times over the course of the pandemic. We are working all that out. We're figuring all this stuff out and I'm hoping to put out a bunch more stuff as I'm home a bit and You know, as as we're all just kind of holed up here, I'm I'm hoping to put out more stuff. I hope everybody's hanging in there. I know these are not easy times for many of us. Um, Job stuff, family stuff, super stressful. So, um, you know, I'm just here to do the tiniest part and provide a little bit of a distraction about a niche topic that uh, we care a lot about and hopefully will be a little more mainstream come next season. I promised on and one other show note, I don't I haven't talked to the fine folks at five college movers about uh, sponsorship in terms of if I do a bunch of shows in a week, I I don't want to force them to sponsor everything if I'm putting out content at a far more regular clip. So for now, we'll say this one is indeed brought to you by the fine folks at five college movers. If you're moving anywhere, if you just got booted from college and need to get back home and you need to do it stress-free, five college movers are the people to do it. They are the best in not only, really not only in Western Mass or or New England, but I think some of the finest movers the country has to offer. In fact, I was my sister is moving and she's very stressed, um, but she's moving in New York and I was telling her maybe she could get five college movers, but then I was like, I'm not sure that makes sense given that you're in New York. Needless to say, I recommended them because they might just be that good that you'd hire them to come all the way down here to do it Uh, for a New York to New York move fivecollegemovers.com friends of the show friends of UMass Basketball friends of UMass Athletics thanks to them for sponsoring us as always and we'll figure out how much they're going to be sponsoring of the content we create in the weeks to come because it'll be as I said more than usual now I tried to break down some thoughts about where the basketball season is going. I may add a mailbag to this if I have time and make this a longer episode. For now, I just want to tell a quick story before going forward. I have, I t- I promised on Twitter I'd put it on the pod and I don't really know where else to fit it, so I think now's the time. Yesterday, Saturday, was the six-year anniversary of UMass's last NCAA tournament game, a game against Tennessee. In a, in a strangely seeded contest, in which UMass was the sixth seed and uh, Tennessee was the 11. By all accounts, you probably could have flipped those two. It was like, it, it, it felt as if they just were plugging UMass into a random spot for an A-10 team, and it was odd. It we were probably more like an eight seed or nine seed. And, um, I I mentioned on Twitter yesterday that I'd tell the story of how I never have actually seen the game in its entirety and people are sort of shocked by that like what do you mean you've never seen that game in its entirety so only UMass NCAA tournament game in uh the last you know 24 years or or no it's 98 so the last 98 to now is 22 years and I and I and I watch all the other games so how you know what do you what do you mean? So here was the deal with that game. I got it. I had worked. This was March of 2014. And I had started one job in January of 14, like the very beginning of January, start of a new year and quickly realized I had a boss I absolutely detested. And I, I feel good saying that now because looking back, it's very easy to say, oh, I had a bad boss, I quit. But if the next bosses, if you feel that again and again and again, then it might be you. But if in fact it's the worst person you've ever worked with and that stays true six years later, you're good. So I can say that this individual was certainly that. So just an absolute lunatic. Anyway, I, get another job luckily and it feels like that's always the case you start you look for a job forever you get a job and then another offer comes like you know unrelated and so you know it's always strange timing so anyway I'm working this job and I'm I'm, I start interviewing for another one and I get hired and it's the I want to say like I want to say it's like the week before the yeah it's, it's the week before the conference tournament when I I get the offer and I tell and so then I think I actually was going up to the finale with to the finale that season of St Louis game with friends UMass Twitter friends Lobby Morrell and. Uh, Billy D. Mullins. And I'd met those guys actually two years earlier at the uh, Atlantic 10 tournament in Atlantic City. So we're going up, we're driving up, they're they're from Jersey, we're driving up uh, to St. Louis. I remember being anxious and panicked, like how am I going to tell this job like I'm quitting after however many weeks. Fast forward ahead, I guess like that Monday, so right when the season ends, or the regular season had ended Saturday, a heartbreaking loss to St. Louis at home in a great game, I think it was Jordair Jett who hit the runner, the game winner, sold out Mullen center. And I quit on Monday. And I guess in the rules for the company, you know, you, if you have, you don't have to provide notice if there, I didn't even notice. I was like offering two weeks or whatever. You don't have to provide notice unless you, um, are, you know, had been there for like 90 days or something. And I'd been there like 70. So... The manager, who obviously was probably embarrassed that they had lost a employee so quickly, and doesn't reflect well on a manager, was just like, "You can leave today, and uh, you know, give me your key fob, and that's it." So I'm like, "All right, whatever." It's like really awkward. I'm out of there like an hour and a half later. I made some friends there over ten weeks, you know, but I'm gone. So I'm like, "This is actually kind of great because I now can just take." two weeks and go wherever UMass goes in the tournament and start like the week after that first round game or whatever. So I call the new employer. They're like, when do you want to start there? You know? And, and I'm like, uh, so I'm actually thinking like the month two Mondays later, cause I think I might've gotten paid through that or I had like a week pay and I was like, I'll sacrifice a week's pay to go see UMass wherever they are in the tournament. So I go, I I I tell them my deal, and they're like, okay, great, whatever, and they're like, we'll we'll be in touch. So UMass NCA tournament, or so the A10 tournament comes. UMass loses to GW, I think, in the second game. They beat somebody the first day, um, and you know they're knocked out, but you know they're going to make the tournament. And then that selection Sunday comes, and they get sent to Raleigh. My in-laws had just moved 15 minutes from there. Like they weren't even in the house yet, but they were kind of like, you know, they were retiring down there quasi retiring down there and they were like getting their stuff ready and they they had rooms available and like nobody had visited. I would have looked like, you know, great because I would have been the first one to visit. Actually, they weren't yet my in-laws because I got married in June of 28, so, or 2014. So they were like, damn, that feels like a while ago. So I go, so I'm like, all right, I'll stay there. I get the tickets right away, whatever. Then the job calls and they're like, and they think they're being flattering and they're like, the new job. And they're like, hey, actually the boss was hoping you could start on Wednesday. And I was like, oh, you know, and I just, I don't, I don't know why I just was like, Okay, like I just got caught off guard, a million things gone on. I don't remember the thought process. I was happy to have this new job and be out of this terrible previous one. And I just was like, uh, okay, you know? And, and you know what I think it was even like I met everyone on like a Monday at a bar and then they were, I was gonna start the next Monday and then they called me after that and they were like, actually can you come in on Wednesday or whatever? And I I just didn't I don't know I it's so obvious now in retrospect but at that point in my career i had like been between some things and i wanted to like you know prove to myself i was serious and blah blah blah, whatever it was i was like 28 and i just was you know it was a new employer and i'd left another one earlier and i was kind of just like yeah okay so i just said i'd I'd be there and i was like what was i thinking i was already into the tickets like i'd already purchased my tickets just and my rationale, I guess, at that point was, I think they played on a Friday? Whatever it was I, was, I was basically determined that I would go if they won the first game, so I could get there for the weekend game and somehow I'd get back. Needless to say, the game comes, it's like, I think it was a 2.45 tip, which is kind of beyond lunchtime. And, but, but like, not yet you can leave the day early, certainly, you know, certainly not when you're uh, on your third day on the job. You, you know, it's like, you, you can't just be like, oh yeah, I'm bolting at 245. And at that time, like, I, and I didn't end up having much work. You know, they had like, it always is like that. There's like one thing that they, that they, the boss who's hiring you thinks he needs you to do. And then he's kind of like moved on to the next thing. And you're just like you've done that thing and then you don't know what you're going to do the next three days. That's how for starting jobs always is. And I'm just sitting there like basically with nothing to do. The game is starting. I'm just overwhelmed with tension and anxiety that I can't be there. Cause I have that thing where I, I think I'm going to like affect the outcome if I'm in the arena and there's no stage at this point, by the way, there's uh there's there's just my old personal Twitter handle, which at that time I didn't want to be tweeting much during the game because you're brand new at a place. What if the, what if your colleagues start following you? I'd love to go back to that day in history and see if, if I was tweeting. I know I had like a bunch of Facebook posts on it. I found them this week. That's how I figured out it was the six-year anniversary. And it was just me being miserable being like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm really upset, you know. But I'm in the arena. Or I'm, so I leave and I'm watching it on my phone. I get the app. It's not as good at that point. And I quickly see us like just starting like shit, you know. I, I think I do take like a a, a like a late lunch or a bathroom break or something and I watch the first few minutes and, and then the rest of the way, I by the time I'm back at the office, it's like all I remember is it's already like you know, twenty seven to twelve or something. And you just it just from the jump, it just had that feel of like, we're not in this basketball game. And so what's the point now in me sitting here and suffering through the whole thing? And I kind of just had it on my phone. I had my headphones in and out. You know, was like trying to dodge people. One guy I worked with, who's now a close friend, kind of knew and understood, but he also probably knew what I was going through in terms of the professional dynamics. And so, I was kind of just like I'm just going to let this one ride out and just kind of listen to, you know, the he- listen to it on headphones and I basically was like listening to the announcers but not even watching the game and I just poked down every once in a while to make sure I didn't get caught kind of thing. <laughs> so in retrospect, I regret it. I wish I was there. I would never in a million years make that mistake again. It was a very different place in my career 6 years ago. Um, I had kind of freelanced a little bit in the, in the years before that. And I had worked for a smaller, a smaller company, very small outlet. So it, like this was a little more formal and I just wanted to, I just had that, like had to prove to myself that that was a priority or something. And I just, I don't know. I don't, I now the other thing to be candid, if we're talking about that season, that season was really two seasons. They were 16 and one to start the year and they were eight and eight to end it. And it felt like when we saw the matchup, Tennessee was like, I think somebody, I forget who, but somebody on Twitter mentioned yesterday when I told the story that Tennessee in Ken Palm was 11th in the country and UMass was 50th. And yet we were the sixth seed and they were the 11. Of course, Duke loses the game prior to Mercer. So there is this moment where you're like envisioning UMass in the Sweet 16. And I think that for a moment probably made me feel better because I'm sitting there like, hey, we win today. I'll I'll be somewhere next weekend. So we should look up where was the regional that year because I'd be very curious. I definitely would have gone. Lo and behold, I will never, if UMass is in the NCAA tournament, make that mistake again. Now, if I had to now, it could be, you know, God forbid, something with one of my kids. Totally different dynamic. But I will never let work or certainly a new job intervene in i mean i i freaking planned my paternity leave in part around my wife is in the background saying not in part because it's when she went back to work yeah but it's narratively better to say in part because if you think about it well okay in fairness she had to go back to work then too so it was kind of perfect but I was excited, she says you were excited about taking it, which I didn't even know existed until she found it deep in the annals of uh, corporate policy. And um, I was excited about taking it because um, I would get to watch March Madness, and instead I was caring for two last week um, while there was no March Madness. So, needless to say, if UMass makes a tournament again, can I get your vow, since you're in the background listening? Can I get your vow? that I will be at the NCAA tournament if UMass makes it again? At this point, they say it might be 18 months. There might be another year. Well, we're not saying they'll make it next year. Let's say they make it in 2024. I need your hard commitment right now on air. Right now. I don't well, okay, know. I'm making an executive commitment. Okay, we can we can file divorce papers. Uh, okay, there you have it. I'll be at the next tournament. Um, needless to say, that's the story. Not as eventful as I as I Uh, had hoped its retelling would be but we're all a little rusty in uh, pandemic mode and uh, enjoy the film alright so I'll just jump in I mean it's your show man I really wanted to – to be honest, like, I really wanted to get you last week after all the craziness, but I think there was so much going on that, you know, it's it was just chaotic. But I, I still want to get your kind of play-by-play, if you will, on wh- how it played out last week in Brooklyn. So I talked to you – just for giving the listeners a, a, the context here, I talked to you, like, Wednesday night. Things were moving – Real quickly, I actually had a friend um, whose kid was playing in a – I'll just say a small conference championship game that night, and I was going to go watch the game with him or go and meet you guys. I was, like, toying with two things. This is at, like, 6 o'clock now. And I think moments later – and maybe I have the timeline wrong – but moments later, the NBA is canceled. And that was – or maybe it was moments prior, but basically as I'm making a decision on like what I'm going to do that night, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'll go uptown then then out to Brooklyn and I'll do both. And it was sort of just taking it more or less normally. And then very quickly uh, dominoes started falling. You'd already had the first A-10 games that day. They were, they were at yeah. like 12 and 230. And so – you guys are in town now prepping and we were going to do a show. And, you know, I was kind of just figuring out the night. And then all of a sudden, like everything starts getting canceled. The pros start getting canceled. College is still on, but you're getting this like weird feeling. And I actually, my wife is like, you can't go out tonight. Like these things are about to start getting bad. And I still wasn't in my head, but I was like, all right, whatever. I'll just see you guys tomorrow you know, after the game kind of thing. And then that was probably eight o'clock. Take me through the next like 16 hours from your vantage point. Yeah.
2: You know, actually, I think you go back like a week prior, because we were talking about coming down, we being the staff for UMass athletics and coming down and doing some, some recording, right. Trying to grab some interviews with people and, and set up, kind of like a super podcast with, with you yeah. involved as well. And then you you saw the fans get shut out, right? That was the first step of, hey, we're going to play these games in front of nobody. And that was kind of weird, but you're like, no, all right, wait, well, that the sort Wednesday of games sense. Were,
0: there were fans at the Wednesday games. Mm,
2: mm-hmm. No, not like – not everyday fans. I think they had like just the – like whoever was deemed like essential personnel, I'm pretty sure. I thought
0: they made that call – But no one goes – Late – So, I thought Wednesday went on as as planned, right? I I just want to get the facts here. I thought Wednesday was like sort of more or less – But nobody goes to that game anyway because it's 12 and 30. No, I think
2: I remember you tweeting out that no one goes to those games anyway after they announced that that they weren't going to allow fans in there.
0: All right. So, maybe they can't – Maybe they don't allow fans there on Wednesday. But then they're still planning on playing – They played, yeah.
2: So – so we got down there on Wednesday afternoon and in time for that second game. And I think the purpose there for Coach McCall is he wanted to see – he wanted the kids to get to see the venue. That's always kind of yeah. a big deal. And because you can't shoot there, um, at least kind of get a feel of what it looks like. So as we rolled in, they were just getting ready to start that second game. And you're like, all right, we're here. This is, this is going to be fun. Like, let's do it. You know, obviously you worked so hard all season. You got the 8-9 game. You know, you got a team you've already beat before. And we went out to get dinner that night, and you're right. Then everyone's sort of like glued to their phone as you're trying not to be that person that just constantly checks Twitter and and news on your iPhone. But things started to happen where you're like, okay, this is becoming something serious. And somewhere in the mix there, the Ivy League came down with the hammer. Yeah. And I think they got backlash from that initially. And everyone's like, oh, you're overreacting. You know, what are you doing to these kids? They canceled the tournament. And then they canceled spring sports, I think, in one Yeah, they were, like, they were fast. Yeah. They,
0: were, they were out ahead of it.
2: And then, you know, you kind of factor in the the unfortunate nature of where we are today as a society where half the people don't believe the stuff that you're telling them to begin with. So you're kind of wondering yourself, like, am I, am I overreacting here or is this going to be a big deal? And I, I think the thing that sort of perturbed some of us was that, you know, you, you get there the, the next day where after the NBA got banged and you get there the next morning and you're setting up your equipment and everyone's going about their business. Like we're going to play that game. And I interviewed coach McCall about 45 minutes prior to the start of the game for the pregame show and after we, rec- we finished recording, you know, he kind of looked at me. He's like, hey, do you, do you think we're going to play this game? <laughs> and at that point, it had never occurred to me that, like, we wouldn't play that game. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> you know what
0: I mean? Like, so we're you all were, here. like, locked in, ready to go. I so was. Way. And Wednesday night, you'd, like, done prep and had your, your stuff ready to go. Yeah. It, you know, I think the weirdest thing
2: was, like, from a broadcast standpoint, because we started up the pregame show – there's nobody in the arena. It just had this kind of real dogish feeling to it. The VCU band is like blowing your brains out of your head because it's the only thing that's going on there, and they do that. And you know, I think after after that interview I had with McCall, he had mentioned that I think one of the other players for the Jazz got um, tested positive for COVID nineteen. And as soon as we come out, I play that interview about five minutes before the start of tip we come out and there's like two and a half minutes on the clock or whatever. And the teams are kind of mingling at center stage. And then you see the news on Twitter coming down, like the hammers coming down from the big 10 and the sec. Yeah. That these yeah. conferences are getting canceled. And now you're thinking like, wow, like, okay, we might not play this game right now. And the big East, I think, you know, tipped off their game. I was a 12 or twelve thirty tip. And we came out of the of the last break on the pregame show, and had just learned on social media that the whole thing was canceled. And then they quickly made an announcement over the PA system, like, "Hey, uh, the A10 tournament has been canceled. Get home safe." <laughs> it's like, so then we we go on air as if the game is about to start, and it almost had this like, "Is this a weird like Edward R. Moreau moment?" Where like, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, there's you, there like this? intensity and like people listening in or is it just like yeah no one cares because it's you know radio and it's the year 2020 so we kind of just juggle it for a bit like hey this has been canceled and you know how serious are people taking this I think sort of made you second guess some of the decisions that were being kind of unfolded there does that make sense
0: did, yeah, yeah. Did, so did, did they get to the starting lineups? Did they actually do the, like, starting lineups? Um, I think they were just about to. Like, no national anthem? Was there a national anthem yet?
2: I can't, I can't recall. Because
0: um, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of, like,
2: the rhythms of a pregame. Right, and- right, right. No, so now that I'm thinking about it. We always come back at the, at the end of the anthem. So the yeah. anthem had already been done. Okay. And we were ready to unload the starting lineups, and that's anthem where they had. Now, now was was there yeah. a person
0: who did the anthem, or was it just like they played a thing because there was no one allowed?
2: No, it was a person, if I'm recalling. Okay.
0: So they had a regular. These are great
2: details that, like, I should have been paying attention to. But like, honestly, like, looking on social media, (laughs) like, like you're seeing all this stuff come out about like things getting canceled, and like you're you've got one eye on that, and you're like standing up for the anthem, and you're also trying to engineer the (laughs) damn
0: broadcast to begin with. Well, and it kind of speaks to like the moment we're living in, which is like the the event itself, and then the ancillary antics of the uh people like following monitoring the event the event itself on other platforms right so it's kind of like people's memories now are such that you know they're like oh i remember i was looking at twitter as as opposed to like it was there as you know (laughs) right um (laughs) but that's a little that's that's we'll leave that to the you know
2: and there was a whole nother kind of Okay so the thing gets canceled. We got to go back and get our stuff from the hotel room. Meanwhile, you know Coach McCall essentially gets taken into the press conference room where you know Bernadette McGlade was across town. She was in Manhattan, the A10 commissioner because she's part of the NCAA board. And so, like, she's telecommuting into all these different phone
0: calls. And- Wait, so is the just to get that clear? She's when you say that board, she's part of. Is that the selection committee? Uh, I think so. I don't. I don't want to speak out of turn. All right. Here, so but she's, she's part in some of something with NCAA apparatus, yes. and they're like yes. posted up at like a hotel in Manhattan. So she's yeah. double duty and probably missing like the round one noon game to handle her other stuff. That helps some, with some context because. I mean, I don't fault the woman, and I know, you know, you're employed by the university, and so I'm not asking you to take opinions on this, but it it felt a little bit as if the A-10, and I don't really blame anyone, but they were a little bit leading from behind, I think, and so are other college conferences. I think everybody was sort of taking their cues and waiting for someone to say something. And once the NBA said it, and then the next morning – you know, it really well, wasn't long prior to TIP that the other conferences began to cancel. Right. Well, let me ask you this.
2: Should it be a conference-by-conference conference situation, or should it just be all-encompassing NCAA, hey, we're not playing?
0: Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, right, like, we are dealing with an unprecedented event, and so there's really no protocol in place to prepare for, uh, you know, especially just timing, right? Like, people universities and, and even athletic departments have some semblance i suspect of contingency plans for different types of emergencies you know i mean they're used to delays for you know softball nca tournament and there's there's they they're you know able to adjust on the fly but this really you don't plan for a pandemic and you don't plan for a pandemic in the days leading up to your your seminal uh event for your sport well so I think you know we're thinking this this is so weird we're like
2: okay well wait we got hockey this weekend and you're like wait no (laughs) there's not yeah no it's funny you know it's in the quarterfinals hosting you know back-to-back years which you would have given you know your left arm if you're a hockey fan over the last two decades at UMass and you're not thinking that like hey this is gonna cancel everything
0: Right. It's funny because you are thinking it's like, OK, well, basketball is starting to be canceled now, but you're not really putting two and two together like basketball's being canceled because of a global pandemic. It's just kind of like, well, one basketball thing canceled. So I guess we can't play ours. Um,
2: well, so is, let me add to that, too, you know, because we're we're scrambling, you know, we get back to the hotel and, you know, guys are visiting with their family members that had come down to see them and so I think as soon as we're, like, packing up, it was announced, and you would probably know this more so, that they were shutting down Broadway shows in New York. Yeah. And it was really weird because here we are, like, walking around with kid gloves on, trying not to touch anything because our seminal uh, event was just canceled and we need to get out of here, you know, this this Gotham den of New York City as soon as possible. And then the rest of the city's just walking around like, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing was wrong.
0: Right. I mean, in many ways, basketball was ahead of the curve in terms of the sort of initial steps. And, I, and at that point, we still didn't really have just the kind of education we've all received over the last week about and like the, the whole vocabulary that's emerged in terms of social distancing and even like quarantine and right. nobody, you know, shelter in place. Yeah yeah shrinking the curve or or, you know none of that was like we weren't even totally cognizant of it now that i think about it and so it was this like waiting game and then the next then then that next the rest of that day like i remember watching the basically they had to fill two hours of airtime on nbc sports which was supremely interesting to watch because it's like all going on in real time they have you know, McCall's presser, Mike Rhodes' presser, the VCU coach, and it just and it's going on. But as that's happening, more and more stuff in the broader world is happening too. And you're realizing like, oh, this isn't confined to right. basketball. And kind of by like four, four thirty that day, within those like four hours, there's a clear cut sense that they're gonna have to cancel the NCA tournament. And I don't know when they they dropped it. It might have been the next day because there was I'm, definitely a, a solid like sixteen hours of people being like, "Well, there's a contingency plan. we could get everybody You to could this push plan. it
2: back, yeah, you can
0: make it you 16 could, and then
2: teams, whatever, I, yeah,
0: I guess it must have been like Friday, midday, Friday. we'll have to look these things up, but um, timeline wise that that it was it was over, and then I think kind of the rest of the weekend was just people adjusting to the new reality and the last week i mean by by monday monday tuesday i think everybody kind of just realized like well we're not going to have much of anything for a while so you know know. i
2: i think i think there's kind of some some layers here where one there was a serious campaign of disinformation or maybe disillusion to what we were actually dealing with and there certainly was a part of the population that kept saying Hey, it's only the flu, it's only the flu. Well, you know, that's all fine and good, but if you don't understand how these things spread, like if you've never watched a movie based on like a pandemic, you know, one person goes here and then 12 people get it, then 24, you know, like it it's exponentially, yeah. It's exponential, yeah. And if you don't understand that that well, hey, it's just a fraction of the population that it's not going to be half the population as as quickly as it can be, then you're not dealing in reality. And I think I think there was part of that that sort of maybe, you know, slowed some judgment down, not only in the sports world, but just in general of, hey, you know, what are we dealing with and, and how do we, you know, mitigate and deal with the, the response that we need to have here. So I think that's, that's certainly part of it. And then, two, as we're on the bus coming back, um, I'm scrolling through Twitter, refresh, refresh, and then the CAA had announced that one of their officials – had contracted COVID 19, and you're like, okay, well, this is it's not just you know, it, it hits you that it's not just you know, the 10 guys on the floor, but you know, everybody surrounding it. And the one guy that's touching the basketball the most is the one that you know, he's wiping it down and you know, or picking it up when it's out of bounds. Like that guy could have it too, and then he can give it to his family and friends, and on and on and on.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, I think we also didn't understand, I certainly didn't fully appreciate the the way in which it's not about contracting the virus it's about the availability of hospital beds and all that sort of education right. that took place in the days to follow so it, i was kind of like well you know I, you know part of me naively was like well i mean okay it's it's not gonna kill a 22 year old you know basketball player so like what's the difference but i didn't sort of put you know just all that stuff no that we now understand in you know of- I'm guilty of that too. I think I, I think I actually said it
2: too when we, when we found out that the, the game was canceled, or the tournament was canceled, and you know we're trying to Adam Frenier and I are bantering back and forth and you know talking about different outcomes and scenarios, and we're just like, you know, but maybe it wouldn't affect the 22 year old. You know, we're told it's not really something that is uh, deadly for somebody. You know, at a younger age. So those are the that's the information you had at the time, right? And you're kind of running through that checklist in your head. Well, ah, it couldn't be that bad if these guys contracted it, but yeah, no. It, it, you know, I talked to Brian Bamford on the our podcast and we'll have a second um, conversation with them coming up next week and he's just like, "Look, they're on the side of precaution and caution and I get that
0: 100%." Yeah, timing was tough. Let's let's talk a little bit about the state of the basketball program at the time you know tip off is coming, did you get a sense that they might have a run in them? Just you were around the program in its final days of the twenty nineteen twenty twenty season yeah. was there was the mood uh you know was there an optimism you think heading into it? yeah,
2: I think so. you know, I think from the fan perspective you're thinking, hey, if we can beat v c u then put up a fight against Dayton. Eh- yeah, I don't think anybody was beating Dayton. But, you, I mean, you never know, right? Like, everyone in this world tells you what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. And those predicted outcomes are never the actual outcome that you get. So, I'm just, Hello? You know, what's actually – Yeah, you lost me for a second, but keep going. No. All right. So, yeah, I think there was some optimism there that, hey, this is a, a VCU team that we've already beaten – Second time around, they were going to be without Dariante Jenkins, who left the program for personal reasons. And, you know, obviously UMass have been playing uh, pretty well, should have probably had that win against Rhode Island, uh, you know, with that controversial play at the end. So I did get the impression that, you know, in in talking with uh, Trey Mitchell too and some of the guys for that piece we did on Trey saying, look, we're not done yet by any stretch of the imagination. So I know there was some excitement to play that game, even though you were going to have to generate your own excitement and intrigue, right? <laughs> Nobody there. And I think you might've been at a bit of a disadvantage with the VCU band. UMass band was down there as well. But if you know anything about the band hierarchy in the A-10, it's, you know, VCU one, Dayton two, everybody else, 13 and oh, 14. I, that's a shot.
0: That's sort of a shot at George Mason fans. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, I, I, think UMass, that. I think the UMass hoop band is actually pretty good, but, I, okay, respect that. I actually thought (laughs) that, I actually think that the, so my, my, my reason that was that VCU was supposed to be awesome at the beginning of the year. And uh, they were top 20. They're 16 and 2 in the league last year. They had everybody back. And they always, always bring just a gajillion people to Brooklyn. And I actually thought, you know, like that so they probably bought a lot of those people buy all sessions passes and they're right. there. So I actually was like, when, when I found out there was no fans, I was kind of like, that could be advantageous to UMass. Yeah. Um, well, let
2: me, let me jump in. Cause I, I think like, I like to think I have a good sense of the VCU fan base. Um, and I, I got the impression that a lot of people were jumping ship.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I, I still think there's probably a, I mean, in a, in a day like that, where there's like, you know, maybe a thousand people in the arena. If they even have several hundred, it was going to probably be more than us. Right. Um, anyway, I, I was of the belief that that could be a difficult game just because I think VCU, sometimes teams get like a new lease on life and they play with nothing to lose. The team's in that in that VCU predicament. But weirdly enough, I thought if UMass won, I thought they'd ha- they had a legitimate shot at beating Dayton, not because they're anywhere near as talented as Dayton, but I just think... Dayton, I thought for Dayton's sake, they needed a loss before the NCAA tournament. If you just look historically at teams that have dominated the I'm talking like
2: New England Patriots 2007. Yeah, a little bit of that. Exactly. Bowl. Exactly yeah, and but, I'm
0: with you. You know, also,
2: but, too, like, go back to that second game against Dayton. Yeah. If Jalen Crutcher doesn't hit an out-of-his-mind three-point shot, and score 11 points in the span of, like, four minutes. And in that game, too, UMass went eight-plus minutes without a bucket in the first half. And four
0: for 20 from three. Yeah.
2: So, uh, I'm with you, man. Like, I thought that game was going to be a lot closer than what people were going to give the Minutemen credit for.
0: So, I I thought UMass – yeah. And, I mean, like, so St. Joe's lost in the quarters the year that they had run the table in the league. And I I just think, like, there's something about about conference tournaments when teams kind of have already sewn up. Uh sewed up or sewn up? Um the uh you know have sewn up the league crown and, and a number one seed or number two seed totally in the bank that I thought like I just thought UMass might might have played with nothing to lose there and you get hot and you might win. So we'll yeah. never know. Um do you think in in a certain sense, like there is this weird thing where Rody ends they end the season with a kind of a weird loss to Rhodey where they really had no business being in the game, but then probably should have won. Um, I think there's something about ending that way that is maybe oddly favorable in terms of off-season buzz because if you ended if, if UMass loses that game and then loses the first game in Brooklyn, there's something about like 14 and 18 that just doesn't sound as uh, impressive as kind of the – end run we saw over the last three or four weeks of the season. Um, where do you think the kind of buzz is now heading into a long off season?
2: Yeah. I mean, you might be right on, on that. I, I think, I think you have to look at, and, and I know you've talked about this, where you would have been had you had, the full complement of players over the course of the season. You know, let's not forget that Cy Chapman left after playing only, what, two, three games this year, and he missed the first four.
0: You missed you five, played, and I think he played, like, four or five. Right.
2: And you missed – you You lost Jury Baptiste. And, look, all teams deal with this, right? Like, yeah. you got to be sick of hearing people say, like, the fact that UMass beat BCU, that VCU was banged up. And I've said this time and time again, well – the Minutemen were without their leading scorer essentially in TJ weeks up until they got hurt. They didn't have a backup big. And, you know, obviously John Buggs kind of a reserve guard at that point without, yeah, no, they had four, the four
0: scholarship guys who didn't play that game.
2: Right. So you can't look me in the face and say, this team didn't play with their full complement of players and not acknowledge the fact that the other team did the same. I, I, I think when you, when you look at the talent level of guys that are starting to take a, A look at UMass and pay attention to you know coming to UMass I think from year one to year now entering four of coach McCall you're getting a higher caliber level of kid that is also being recruited by not only mid-majors but also power fives and I think that's maybe something that was missing initially with with McCall is that you know you needed some just a little more talent And it seems like that talent is coming in. And it's not only coming in, it's coming in in waves. And there's a legit belief, I think, from them that next year, they can be a top three team in the A-10.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think what maybe people don't realize who are – if you're, let's say, a Dayton or George Mason fan and you follow UMass peripherally, people don't quite realize – or even just a casual UMass fan, people don't quite realize that – if we're being candid, the nucleus of freshmen that did a lot of damage this year, a lot of that nucleus may not form the nucleus of next year's team. I think there's a perception that, like, okay, well, you had a bunch of freshmen who did some things. Sorry, that's my kid. Um, <laughs> who did the um, – who did damage, you know, this past year. I think there's guys who are going to come and get a ton of minutes who weren't on the roster at all. Um and, and I think that it's the, the biggest thing I'm looking at is kind of culture and team dynamics in terms of there are guys on this year's team who just aren't going to play as much next year is the way I see it.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's potential there, but it's also back to my sort of mild rant here is that everyone says, Hey, this is going to happen or this is going to happen. And you blatantly do not know the outcome of anything in this world. There's a there's a real chance. I mean, how many times have you heard guys come into any program that are that are hyped and don't live up to to the billing? So, you know, I think I think one of the things that they they would prefer and need is depth and additional scoring from someone not named named Trey Mitchell. And you're going to have an opportunity with the guys that are coming in, along with the returning players. You know, let's not forget, I think we've seen at times that Devaji Walker could be a premier scorer if he gains a little confidence, maybe gets a little bit more solidified physically and has a whole offseason to do that with his program. You know, you're, and it's not going to be the same guy every night. So there's opportunities there, I think, to whoever steps in and gets the minutes to, to kind of take the bull by the horn.
0: I, I will just use this moment to say sort of how I see things playing out since we're go we're for it. By
2: the way, you would be a great A ten like full time commentator if you didn't have kids and a family.
0: Yeah, I would. I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a job. And a job. Um, yeah. Can we just, I, yeah. I um, I think the way I see it for for next year with UMass is like I, I, well, the way I see this team this year is really at your best. You had at your best. You had two really good shooters and a legitimate national caliber big man. Right. You had kind of a platooning um, trio of, of freshman point guards who were serviceable and did a better job, I think than anyone was really anticipating. But the truth is like throwing three point guards, one of whom got injured right away, one of whom sustained uh, injuries. Uh, very early and missed a bunch of games and one of whom had to play a lot more than he probably would have had the other two been there the entire time. The reality is like, you just don't win. You can't really win in the Atlantic 10 with that as your, as your point guard situation. And uh, when you don't have a secondary, and then you didn't really have a secondary big to kind of clean up on the glass. And UMass struggled on the glass a lot of times this season. So then you take away the the, one of those shooters. Right. And you have, you know, a, a meaningful number of off nights for another one of them. And you're basically dealing with one legitimate national big and seven, eight guys playing hard defense. And that recipe, interestingly enough, carried them to more wins than when they had the two quality shooters um, early in the season. You know, like, so it, it was an odd season in terms of how it played out because a lot of the wins they got were not the wins people expected. I mean, this is a team that lost by 24 at home to a bad GW team, but then should have beaten St. Louis twice, did once, hung tough with Rhode Island twice, should have won that game, basically played the top half of the league, you know, beat Duquesne, um, beat VCU, played the top half of the league like exceedingly well, and it wasn't really because of talent. So now you enter next year with Javon Garcia and hopefully Noah Fernandez. We'll see if he gets eligible. Two like bona fide, recognized, legit point guards who, by all accounts, can sort of step in and play a lot of minutes right away. You add in a Devaji Walker who Sat much of this season, and a, bring back a healthy TJ Weeks. You're now, so you're, I mean, you're basically tripling your offensive production at a host of positions.
2: Yeah, well, no, you're right.
0: The question becomes much more one of where do you find guys the right amount of minutes. You're expand, you're expanding your rotation, um, and you're bringing in, you know, uh, a bunch of new talent. So my my thing this year is less about. Like I think, basically, what I'm trying to get at is they found a strange recipe to win late in the year, and it's a recipe that only could fit the 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 uh, this group of players, right? Where Trey basically led things on offense. Everybody else played hard on defense, and one guy, one other guy, would step up on different nights and have a big night, like you said, a Walker or a Pierre. But next year, the composition of the roster changes entirely. And I think the big thing would be finding the identity that actually gets you wins. Because I think a lot of times coaches enter seasons and they're sort of like, all right, uh, here's what I got. And I kind of I know what I'm going to ride and whatever. Next year, you, you have a lot more to work with. But that's not necessarily an automatic recipe for more success particularly when you found a weird recipe for success this past year. so Yeah, you know, I I see what you're saying. I'd also
2: kind of make the argument that, you know, you were forced at times for the first 18 games to play a freshman point guard 36 or seven minutes in Sean East. And I think when you look at the progression of some of these guys, like, where Sean East was to begin the season as a player. You know, 25 turnovers as a team against St. Louis that first meeting. think the last eight or nine games, the Minutemen as a team didn't have more than 11 or 12 outside of the game against VCU. Like, Preston Santos developed into a guy that, you know, I think you can see a little bit more of next year, but a guy that actually was relied upon. Your to To your kind of formula there, how many games were there – if you had Trey getting triple teamed, which happened nightly, if you just had somebody hot on the outside, would have been open for a three to hit. You know, and and sometimes that was Pierre, but there were nights where he was off. If you insert TJ Weeks into last year's formula during conference play, I think it's at least another three wins for the
0: Minutemen. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because people say that, but then you're like, Well, is this an eleven and seven team with with just one more freshman?
2: Sure. <laughs> maybe (laughs) why not you know like no i think like like 10 years ago would you have told me st joe's was a two-win team you know like that's the beauty of the a10 is that there's so much disparity here i
0: I think you're right and i think that's a tendency there's a tendency to say you know if we would had these other things we would have been so much better and that's true but i also think there's something about when the roster gets thinned a bit and identities get solidified that actually makes guys play better and harder and sort of understand their role a little bit better. And that's why like UMass was winning a lot of ugly games in that were low scoring. It's like, it's hard to know because if you have TJ Weeks, maybe a game against the VCU gets a little more up and down, they get a few more turnovers. And all of a sudden, instead of having 52 points, they have 62 points. And, you know, so I, I think that like, yes, the tendency is always to say you add one of your best players and you're going to be automatically better. Um, and I think that's the case if you're, like, a, a traditional big, like a Trey Mitchell or even a uh, point guard. Because in the Atlantic 10, I think point guards dictate so much of the tempo. But TJ, who I who maybe is, a, you know, one of my two or three favorite players on the team, I'm not necessarily certain that just him being back would automatically – Give you another three wins, just because I think other dynamics change. If you look at how they, like, his last game, I want to say it was probably South Carolina, which was in the eighties. No, um, it was at a
2: Rutgers. Yeah.
0: You know, uh, Rutgers. Yeah, no, because he played at Harvard too. So I mean, he he played into December. Um, so you know, or did he not? I think he played at Harvard. And the point
2: games. Is, yeah.
0: Yeah. The point is, like, you know tempo stuff changes too and I think this team it helped some other guys to play a little bit slower and a little bit uglier and right no you I get what you're saying and what you're saying there's also
2: unintended consequences for changing things around Um, but one the nature of college athletics is that's just how it's going to be every year and two I don't think I'm even specifically talking about like tempo and style like there's probably moments where you can think of a few games this year where, for whatever reason, UMass couldn't hit from the outside, and you just see that sweet stroke from TJ Weeks and his quick release, and you're saying, hey, you know, there, we want – the Minutemen won that game against – was it – one game they won with two three-point makes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, no, there are times was... they're making four, five, three-point shots a game, and it's – I don't know if your you're shot – your three point shots would increase, but I think your percentage would have. And I think that would have made a difference, but to your point, you're right. I think like the composition changes, but the thing that's going to stay the same is that you have one of the more dominant big men in the NCAA and he's going to draw two, three defenders every night. And that should open up other guys offensively or so you'd hope.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll be really intrigued by how they run the offense next year. Um, because I think that where the real improvement comes is in kind of this year's team just didn't have a guy, a guard who could take guys off the dribble and get to the rim with, uh, with consistency. Dabaji Walker, not really a guard started doing some of that from like a sort of a three slash four spot. And, um, but other than that, they really didn't have like a, kind of traditional downhill penetrator get you to get you a bucket get you to the foul line when you really need to next year they're going to have as many as like four I because I think weeks did that a little bit when he was there and that helped um Javon Garcia very much does that uh and uh Cairo Mercury does that and I think the one guy who started to do that a little bit this year and will will continue to improve is Preston Santos so like I do think this the 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 way they won last year, it's going to – the way they win this coming year is going to look very different just in terms of the, like, kind of aesthetic of it. Right. Than the way well, they won
2: this year. You know, go back to the first year uh, before I got here under Coach McCall. Like, you know, they won five. Lost. You know, I think won, at that point – I lost you. it.
0: They won five.
2: They won five that first year for Coach McCall without pretty much – anybody left on the roster once he took over and after the debacle happened, you know, uh,
0: um, yeah. before Don't he arrived, remind me.
2: yeah, I won't. Um, so, so I think therein lies, like, how do you coach and how do you coach to the talent and players and character that you have? And I think, you know, that needs to be, and I think it, it is one of McCall's strengths is to understand kind of what you have and how to, you know, utilize your strengths and, because, I mean, you mentioned it. You know, the games are getting out of hand there, 80, 85, 90 points. Like, how do, I, how do I have more stifling defense and keep it in that more rock fighty range? Like, I mean, that's what Fordham does, right? They kind of bring it down and, and try to win 52 to 48. You know, that's not what the men were trying to do, but how do we play a more tenacious level of defense and how does that spread to everybody else defensively? You know, and then you've got Colton Mitchell back who can kind of throw in there as an energy guy. So, yeah, I think that certainly falls on the coach and to figure out how to kind of put all the pieces correctly in the place. But, but let's be honest, if you have a fa- – if you drop, like, look at VCU. I, I use them as an example a lot because I worked there for, for four or five years. When they hired Mike Rhodes, they brought in Marcus Evans, right? And Evans, they immediately drop in, once he becomes eligible, a playmaking point guard that can shoot, and so they go from one of their worst years that they had in recent memory to one of their best a year ago. The difference that that kind of that one sophisticated point guard can make, like a Fats Russell, yeah, is huge. And if that's Sean East or if that's Javon Garcia or if that's Noah Fernandez, and all, by all accounts from reading about those latter two guys, you know, people are very excited about what they can do. You know, I think that changes the entire composition of the team, and that change could be for the better.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is – that's what gets you six more wins. You know what I mean? And, and the combination of pieces there is definitely the thing I'm most excited about uh, in terms of next season. Look, I mean, you don't want to have to play a guy 38 minutes a game,
2: right? I mean, if you're going to go through the whole season and keep everybody healthy, you're going to have to find those spots and play – like even Sean East when he stopped starting this year because I think that was a plan for them to sort of slow him down a little bit and get him to see the game from the sidelines initially. You know, he still ended up, ended up playing 32, 33 minutes a game when he wasn't starting.
0: Yeah, and, and he his season was an interesting one in that he started off, like, historically brilliantly. Then, you know, they started playing some teams that it's just like you're asking a kid in his sixth game who was, like, not recruited until very late and is, like, you know, not a big kid, not not physically dominant to go and play back-to-back days against, you know, 35 minutes against Virginia and St. John's. Right. And then, I mean, so he sort of, you know, tailed off a bit, then played really well, you know, kind of at the very end of at Akron and at St. Louis, and then struggled for, you know, a, ch- a good chunk of the uh, conference play before playing really well in the last few games. Um, and was kind of like, I actually was like, eager to see what he would do Uh, in the A-10 tournament because I think it started to get some mojo back. Well, why don't you add
2: to this that, you know, you think about some of those games and this was even before it was all Trey Mitchell, right? I mean, St. John's felt like more of a team game and they had the lead up in a nine point lead up until midway through the second half. And they made the run at the end of the first half against Virginia. Yeah. And you're doing all that with, uh, yeah, on the, on the legs of, of Sean East as a, you know, freshman point guard, I would be curious if you had, like, the analytics. You might have someone in your sphere of basketball people. When he stopped scoring, it was because his floater, when he drove the lane, just wasn't falling. Yeah. And you might be able to make a tribute of that to bigger competition, more better defensive players, taller guys, longer guys. But I think some of it is just pure luck, too. Yeah like he yeah. hit that shot almost every time the first six games of the season.
0: No, he had a few games where he was just like, those are great looks. And then conversely, he hit a couple that were probably like, you're like, ooh, how, that's not a great shot. And right. then would go in, I think, against like LaSalle and uh maybe maybe even Rhodey. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. Um being around are you the eating, team, is
2: this part of the is this this is part of the podcast? That's, that's I very I on brand for you- me,
0: yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Being around the team, uh, I'm curious, like, from a, was it, you know, I think from afar, the narrative that emerged and, you know, that that I was certainly touting was that, like, Trey's dominance really was what changed the course of the season. And I'm curious if, and and it seemed like Trey began to take on a more vocal on-court role in terms of just his confidence and kind of, psychologically it felt like he was growing more comfortable with the fact that like he's the focal point of this offense and then that maybe he's also kind of a leader you know alongside Pierre but after weeks went down and you know they struggled that you know for that long that stretch it seemed like when the team got it together a lot of that was not just Trey's performance but it did it did feel like his leadership sort of shine through did you did you get a sense that he grew more comfortable as the year went on like kind of assuming that that mantle yeah
2: I I think you could say that you know he seems like a like a quiet individual from afar but when and I I don't profess to know him um, on an intimate level by any means but you know we've had some interactions I've interviewed him a couple times Um, he's I I would say this he's way more charismatic and intelligent, I think, that when people just see here's a guy that just plays basketball and, you know, drops 20, 20 a night. And I think he does have those traits. And when you talk about sort of leading by example, I mean, this is, this is a silly adage, but first one in, last one out. I mean, he's always at the gym getting shots up along with Carl Pierre. Those two are usually the, the first ones out there. But I think more importantly, there was like there was a hatred of losing between him and Santos and some of the kids that are, you know, just getting their arms around college basketball where you won the first 5 games of the season and then you went through that tough stretch and again the competition was much better but like I don't think they really saw it that way they just saw it like why are we losing and how yeah. do we fix how do we fix this and you know to their credit they were able to they're able to do it and I think they gave us uh, you know a lot to look forward to for next season. And yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to see, to see what happens, you know, cause you, you go back to, to last year when, you know, you had your training sessions going on and the strongman contests and all this, like, unfortunately, Cy Chapman wasn't here, but he was physically a different player. Yeah. Even Trey Mitchell from the, the headshots and the photo shoot that he had as a freshman, when he came in to where he was at the end of the season, like, you know, nothing's good enough for him. And you kind of want that in your lead player and a guy that is constantly striving to be better, both academically and, and on the court, by the way. And, you know, even look at somebody Diallo his step from year one to year two physicality wise, <laughs> he's just a bigger, stronger dude.
0: Yeah. Um, I, where was I going to go with that? You, you I don't know. You got, you got me off track there, but, um, No, I I just think Trey, I I think what's interesting is what you're saying. So they struggle in those next six games and then they really don't kind of get it together until right around February 1st. It was really the final month of the season that, you know, January was a pretty rough month and February, it just seemed like something clicked in terms of the way that they figured out they had to win. And to me, it was team defense as much as anything. I think, you know, they're going to win next year, because, or if they do win next year, it's going to be because of superior talent. But this year they weren't going to win because of superior talent, and we kind of all knew that. And so the nights where they didn't have it defensively or they just took possessions off, they were especially ugly nights. You know, I think, like, next year you're not going to see that just because you're going to have enough talent to – even if you're having a rough night, you're going to have enough talent to to get 70 points. Right. Right. this year, when it was bad, it snowballed. I mean, the Davidson game, the George Washington game at home. I mean, it's easy to for you know. I think we're I'm encouraged by everything we saw in the late season, but when it was ugly this year, it was pretty ugly. And I'm I'm curious. Like you're an announcer, I'm a fan, so I get very I, I don't I don't now I can look back in the season with more perspective. When you're going through it, are you kind of just like? Yeah, this is a routine growing pain and they'll, they'll get it the next night. Or were there moments where you're like, hmm, this team is just might not be very good after all? <laughs> um,
2: that's a good question.
0: I, I would say, like, from my vantage
2: point, which I think is unique because I really don't, I really don't follow sports as much as most people do on a daily basis. Like the team I work for is a team
0: I, I care about. I'm, a bit, I'm actually about. a bit like that now that I have kids. Like that's actually my, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Like everyone's out there tweeting about, you know, no sports and I'm like, oh, read a book. I'm about to yeah. go for a bike ride here. Like, but I have an insane amount of passion for the team that I'm working for and especially for Massachusetts because I grew up here. It means so much to me. And I think a lot of times I look at it maybe to the detriment of my broadcast from a fan perspective. Um, and when I, and, and I think one of the things, if you ask me to be critical of my employer, which is the University of Massachusetts, I would say, I think the season at times was marred by some of those games, GW, Harvard, Davidson, where you just got the doors blown off you. And I think there's t- Richmond, too. And that was a yep. especially difficult for me because I had about 25 screaming fans behind our bench um, from my days in Richmond just there to kind of cheer us on. Um, that stung. And so I think there were moments like the GW game specifically where you're like, wow, I don't know. I don't know where this is going. Yeah, And as a fan, you can kind of get sucked into that conversation. The Davidson game, they were shooting lights out. Richmond just had a whole nother level. Like, you could make excuses for each one of those games outside of Harvard. But I think what brings you back to reality is, like, look, you have one of the best players in the conference. And there's people that want to play with him, I would suspect, around him. This is how the Minutemen grow this program. and you feel like you're confident that they're going to be able to get it right the next day or they're going to die trying.
0: Let's, let's talk about that for a moment and you can jump whenever you got to go. So let me know. Um, But Trey Mitchell, some of the stuff he did this year, what was amazing about it was it was so, it was literally like almost if you did a graph, it, it was like, what's the, you know, what I mean? basically it got better and better and better and better and better. And each, you know, for the final, like what felt like 10 or 12 games, every single performance was like better than the next. You're like, well, he put up 30 at Rody Right. You can't top that. <laughs> Rody comes to the Mullen Center. He puts up 34, you know, he, you put up. And, and so he, he just continued to exceed expectations, which were already quite high. And like in the off season, my whole thing was kind of like, yeah, like, you know, let's hope he can get you, you know, 14 and – 14 and five – you know, 13 and five and kind of like – just, you know, I didn't want to, like, put too much on a kid's shoulders who's a freshman. And by the end of the conference slate, I mean, he was just doing things that I've never seen any freshman at UMass do or really virtually any freshman in the Atlantic tend do. Right. Year – like, so now you have eight months of basically that – that hype train growing and you can see it in the kids, you know, his Twitter followers grow and his, and the, and the, the, news articles, you know, have begun to appear more and he'll start being on preseason lists. And so I'm very curious, like next year, where there is more depth, there is more talent, what his particular role looks like. Uh, is it, is it, is it the Trey show? And is it a disappointment? Is there any way for him to exceed what he did this year? Because, the truth is, with all those other weapons around him, his numbers might actually take right, a bit of right. a
2: dip. No, you're right. And I think I, I would I would put this into two categories. One, uh, if you even just take out the numbers, the footwork, the yeah. ability to step outside and shoot the three, the ability to drive on guys. I mean, just from a sheer this is the game package that he has is off the chart. And I think you could see that play on any A-10 team and probably a lot of power five teams too for what he could do. I think from his perspective, this is just me kind of speculating here from his perspective and from the, the program's perspective is that even if they don't need him to score 20 points a game next year, that's going to mean that they're winning, you know, go back to, to right. two years ago when you needed, sometimes you'd get 25 a night from Carl Pierre and he'd go six of seven from three point range and you'd lose by eight. Yeah. Like, I, I think the recipe for success to kind of talk about your secret sauce there is, yeah, you've got an outstanding player that if they don't double him is going to score on a, on a per possession basis. We saw that against Rhodey. They didn't double him. He put up 30. I think UMass only hit three three-pointers in that game. Otherwise, they win it on the road. I, I think there's an understanding that there's going to be more help, hopefully, or at least maybe less leaning on Trey, but also winning more games. And those two things I think can go hand in hand. Isn't is it hard game? to be one guy
0: to to win a game in basketball? I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, especially because I, what I don't think people fully appreciate is that the A-10, the, the national consensus and, and really most of college basketball, but particularly the A-10 is so widely regarded as, guard-centric, guard-dominant. You can't get to that next tier without killer guards. And that may be true, but in that last game against Rhodey, I think the team, other than Trey, shot like three for 21 from three and 25% from the floor. They lost by one, and it was because of, you know, a phantom foul call on the last play. You're basically like – you're basically beating a senior-laden – fringe tournament team with one freshman i mean obviously right. that one freshman having a particularly dominant performance so next year if he gets you get to 16 against them in that same game you, you probably still win because you have a ton of you know a bunch of weapons around him but i i still think like his dominance was such that you can't go away from him you still kind of have to run the offense through a kid like that even if you have those other weapons and it's more a question of like on which night is the is is a guy? Gonna, is it going to be TJ who shoots six for eight from three? Is it going to be Carl Pierre? And how is that rotation going to evolve? Um,
2: yeah, I, I think I think the throw into that as well. Like you talk about the off season, you know, there's other guys obviously that want to get better and improve as much as possible. You know, Preston Santos showed up late lat this I past think he, year.
0: He, he had the most improvement over the course of yeah.
2: the year. And, and Carl Pierre is going to be a senior. And I think, you know, he's going to be there each and every day trying to figure out how to, how to get better. Samba Diallo feels like that kind of energy guy, maybe more so um, a, a guy that comes off the bench at times to to try and produce some rebounds. But, you know, I, I don't know what the the size is going to look like for this team next year. You know, he's really kind of your toughness
0: right now. Um, well, I think Dominguez could start as a freshman. I don't think yeah. we're really talking about that because he's like – just, again, it's, again, when I talk about the, the sauce, he fits this interesting role where he's, like, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, can step out and shoot it but can also play down low. He's – they don't really – they didn't really have that this year. They struggled on the glass, and you need to give Trey a secondary rebounder. So, just by dint of, sort of, like, who's on the roster, you may see things that I think people aren't fully expecting. Um, that's why, like, if Noah Fernandez plays – you need yeah. a pest on the ball. We we haven't had. We, I don't think this year we really pressured uh, opposing point guards terribly well. So there, you know, there. I think next year it's a lot of plug and play based on matchups and based on various dynamics. Um, and I think there, there's there's going to be ten guys that at one point or another in the season, minimum of ten guys who will see. I think right. twenty five well, minutes or more at least one night. Look, you never finish the year with the
2: same roster that you had, right? I mean, there's attrition. There's guys that leave. There's guys that get hurt. So you need that kind of bulk of guys that can step in in any given night. I think one of the big uh, – and I'm going to leave this here because i got to go for a bike ride with yeah, my yeah. wife here while the sun's still shining. But we can do this throughout the week if you want. I'll talk to <laughs> may, with you as much as you want. Um, you know – and i talked to this with athletic director Ryan Bamford before it was announced that Noah Fernandez was committing to university of Massachusetts who came in from Wichita state, you know, the X factor here is what the NCAA does with the pending transfer rule. And, um, Ryan Bamford said, he thinks it's maybe a 50 50 up in the air if they're going to allow guys to transfer once. Um, and so, you know, that obviously throws a a huge kind of, kind of <laughs> curveball in a good way into your, into your program. Um, well, and it to could how those guys get together the other
0: way too. I mean, you never know if, if you don't have to sit out, who knows, you know,
2: Yeah. Who who you, you know, lose. and, and this goes, this goes to, this is probably, we'll put this com- this conversation to the next, to the next pod, but, you know, can you, you need to build a program, not just rely on, you know, a handful of guys Like you have to be able to, Consistently build like a Dayton or a VCU.
0: Davidson hasn't had a transfer since 2015. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Put a pin in this. Take care, buddy. Ciao.
1: So it is my thing. It is my distinct pleasure now to introduce to our audience for the first time on the program a fixture of the UMass Twitter scene. And as I always note with our fans who do not follow the day-to-day minutia of UMass Twitter, there is a very involved fan community, you know, maybe a few hundred people to varying degrees. This guest is right there in the upper echelon in terms of uh, avidity and uh, active posting has really been a fixture and in many ways the sort of um, the opposite of the elder statesman, whatever the opposite of that is, sort of the uh, rookie wonderkind, if you will, has been posting pretty aggressively, I'd say, for I mean, with Twitter time, is a flat circle. You never really know, but at least a few years. I'll, I'll, I'll let him t- I'll speak to some of that in a moment. But some years ago, or maybe a year ago, I don't quite have the timeline. We began to joke, but semi-seriously note that his college decision was forthcoming and that we wanted to be the uh, exclusive outlet that received the news. And obviously, a lot of UMass people have been jockeying for um, his attention and, and trying to encourage him to make the decision to UMass, which we learned some months ago. It's been drawn out a bit that it had been... He, he, he eliminated some options and he was down to UMass among others he's then, he then recently said he's down to two options I'll let him get to that in a moment our guest, without further ado, and excuse my little, my, it's almost fitting that my my actual baby is uh, in my arms as I record this but our guest is the sort of baby of UMass Twitter, and I say that endearingly uh, Eli Sloan Slopes,
3: Welcome to the show. Hey, you know what? Thanks for having me. I think I've listened to almost every episode except for, you know, maybe a few of them. Um, so I've actually been, you know, involved in the whole UMass Twitter scene since I was in eighth grade. So I'm a, I'm a senior now. So it's been about five years. Um, I actually remember the first time I had ever heard of like Kurt Hicks Sage as an account or anything. I was standing in the in the Massachusetts room with Alan Pandiani and I had just gotten to Twitter. I, I broke my wrist. I think I've told my, that story a few times about how I always wanted one because I knew about the whole UMass deal and my mom was like, No, then I broke my wrist. Anyway, he was, Wait, telling this me, was your freshman year of high school or sophomore. This sorry. was in eighth grade. It was in eighth grade. Eighth grade. Got yeah, it, so it, it was predates high school. Um so I had hopped on and I think I gained a little bit of a following, but then Alan was like, "Hey, you know, you got to follow this guy, Curry Hicks Sage. He's you know the basketball voice." And I had no idea who it wasn't obviously that predated the podcast and everything. So you, you've clearly come a long way since uh, since then in terms of a ten Twitter and all things in that regard. Um, but yeah, so it's been it's been a few years now that I've been involved, and I. Uh, I absolutely love it. I think it's great. It's a wonderful community. We've got plenty of different types of people. Like I said, I, I hopped on WMA at, at halftime of the URI game and pretty much gave the rundown on that. I don't know if our uh, our buddies over there have ever released that. I'm not sure, but that was an interesting interesting time. They uh-huh. did.
1: Very good. I actually retweeted it. You can go back a couple of weeks and, and, and check that
3: out. Oh, okay. I, I haven't listened to it, so I'd got, I'll have to look that up Yeah.
1: It was well done, and if I if I may say so myself, uh, just a little context in terms of my affinity for Sloven is that he and I come to our UMass fandom through really the same exact uh, background, which is to say we're both from the area. You're uh, a little closer to campus than I was, but you know within fifteen minutes, and grew up around it. And so UMass athletics were a core part of our uh, fandom options as as kids. And uh, at the time, you know, for me, it was a little different because UMass was so good that it was almost like everyone was a huge UMass fan, at least into my middle school years when they started. The last tournament in the long run was in, I guess, sixth grade. So, you know, middle school, high school years were a bit leaner, but I stayed, I mean, frankly, high school was like Steve Lapid, so I should, you know, it was a tough time, but I stayed connected and always felt the kinship to, the, to the, uh, the university, did not go to UMass, as we've talked about on the show, at some length. And, you know, truth be told, I never even really considered UMass, I think because it was just so in my backyard that I just uh, I just wasn't thinking in those terms. In retrospect, it should be noted that this is 15, 16 years ago. UMass has improved uh immeasurably not that I was like going to Harvard but uh at the time I was just like if I was going to go to a UMass I was going to go elsewhere and I remember flying like I applied to the University of Georgia the University of Colorado, Colorado University UVM those are the state the big state schools that I was thinking about going to at one point point. and so I was just like if I'm going to go to a solid flagship state school I'm not going to do it in my backyard that being said, do I have regrets looking back? Um, I do and I don't. I love where I went to school. actually went to two schools, transferred after my freshman year, have some attachment to both, have great friends from both. Athletically, I'm still completely tied to UMass, and so in many ways, my connection to higher ed more broadly is, is still to UMass at this point because that's where my fan interests lie. I also think and I'm just setting this all up so it so work for me I also think that not having not the UMass has a couple of advantages from from a fandom standpoint in that I can be more candid quite frankly because where they, they can't take my degree they can't you know it's, it's more there's something about it where I'm not like trying to get on the board of trustees right I just maybe I want to be involved in UMass Athletics and I have had to rein some things in but the point is I don't feel uh, like I do a whole lot of self-censoring because I see it as more of like a, a kid growing up in Boston would see the Red Sox. You, you just wouldn't, you know, unless your father works there, you know. It's like, and you know, my dad went to graduate school, UMass, like I have a lot of ties, but it's just, I don't have the, you know, the, the restrictions, I think, that, that maybe sometimes come with a, with a little bit of that.
3: Oh, I Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, there's been some self-cens- uh, self-censoring absolutely along the way. There definitely has been, so I, I feel that.
1: You mean because you wouldn't want uh, the admission to see what you're saying on the internet?
3: Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, and before we get to the choice, and this is kind of the uh, LeBron-like, this is the decision. You know, I mean, this is—I not don't, I don't want to overstate it. It's—it's important, but this is pretty important. And we're down to two: it's Penn State and UMass. Um, before we get to that, just I want to learn a little bit about. I hate to date myself here, but there was no Twitter when I was graduating high school. Twitter I learned recently was founded in 2006, but didn't really take off till two years after that. I joined in 2009 when it was like in the first wave. I was, you know, of people joining, not three was many years later because people said, I don't want to hear what you have to say about UMass basketball on your personal account. So I just created a new one. That was only like four or five years ago. Um, that being said, in my day, <laughs> there was no, you know, you didn't have to worry about that sort of thing. You, you know, an admissions officer would have to really pretty extensively Google to find much. Facebook came in came into play, like my freshman year of college. So there really wasn't a ton out there, unless you and people just posted under like, you know, fake names. You you know, your your screen name was was generally not your real name. Your uh, pretty much everything you, you went by was like that was the code. You know, we used to post on Mass Live. Forums, which were basically an early message board. That was there was a UMass basketball message board in there. That was not good.
3: That was on Mass yeah. Live, really.
1: That was on Mass Live, but there was also a high school basketball and high school baseball. They had each of the sports varsity forums. and A lot of shit talking there. I don't remember what I posted under, but I definitely did for for a time. So that was like, and they were like ugly looking message boards. Like the threads were real, you know, real sloppily organized. It Was just like. It just, it was, this was like very pre Reddit or pre, and, you know, early internet. So that was where a lot of the high school banter would go on between opposing schools. But even then, it was always, it was the big line it was like, why don't you get out from behind that screen name, you know? Uh, <laughs> because no one really knew who was saying what. I remember some big high school games that, you know, there was a lot of back and forth on the internet. But there still wasn't like, maybe you post an away message on AIM. This is going back early internet. My question before I get, before I start waxing philosophic about my childhood, the internet use is you're pretty open about your identity on Twitter. And I presume elsewhere, is that challenging in a small town? And how does it impact the kind of content you're putting out?
3: Well, well, here's the deal. So I, I absolutely have, have found challenges in it. I think there was only one time where my dad was like, you know, what are you doing? And it was about the Red Sox. I was losing my mind. So it's not really related to anything here. But um, I've definitely, I've seen a lot more positives than I have negatives over the years. I've definitely gotten to connect to people within the athletic department that then that, that is at UMass that I definitely just would not have been able to connect with on the same level that I have had I not had Twitter. Um, I actually, a, a classic story. So we're, we're at Rafters, which... Doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. RIP Rafters. Yeah, RIP Rafters. We were there with the Mills after a, a baseball game. So, I, I sure if you listen to one of the last few episodes, you heard about the hypothetical uh, death of myself and my best friend, JB. Um, and so we're sitting there, and it was like two or three nights after Kale McCarr had just gotten drafted, him and Ferraro. And uh, right next to us is like the whole UMass hockey coaching staff. And uh, so they were getting up to leave. We literally, every time we went to rafters with the mills, we pretty much shut the place down. We'd have like 60 wings. It was just craziness. But uh, we were sitting there, and and the coaches were about to leave. And my dad was like, hey, Coach Garble, you know, nice job with the draft picks, blah, blah, blah. And so obviously beginning stages of, of their program growing, and he would do the same thing today uh coach carwell comes over and he shook all of our hands and he had known uh coach mills for a little while when he was at amherst college because they just so
1: so folks know the contact is that your friend jb mills his father is the football coach longtime football coach at amherst college so sort of a coaching fraternity dynamic at play there
3: exactly yep and so he came over and he's shaking everybody's hands and his daughter is actually in the same grade as my sister and uh, JB's younger brother, Nate. So they were in the same grade. And he gets to uh, me, and I'm like, hey, coach, you know, I'm Eli Sloven, blah, blah, blah. I think I was, this was probably my, it must have been my sophomore year, because I think that's one, or maybe it was my freshman year when they got drafted. I don't remember. Um, either way. Wait, when did I start with
1: first year in yeah.
3: So it was, it was going into his second year, because. Okay, so that would have
1: been like. April, May of your freshman year of high school because he just completed his sport.
3: Yeah, that's what it would have been. Yep. And so uh, he gets to me, and he's like, "Wait, you're Eli Sloven? What? I thought you were like some forty-year dude sitting behind a keyboard at home." Blah blah blah. And I was like, uh, no, that would be me." And so I've definitely uh, gotten to connect with people like that you know that way because they think i'm somebody else and then they meet me and they're like wait this is a young kid that's actually involved and they they think it's pretty cool so i've benefited from that um and obviously i have my my campaign to follow coach carville um on twitter that that spawns from something that you know is a little bit different from what we're talking about here but that was just a classic moment so i still press that because he brought him to the frozen four i think that's huge um but, no, I mean, I, I've been around town for a while. And I, I when I started, I was a three-sport varsity athlete. I've since trimmed, that, I've trimmed down. that down. This year I only played hockey because, you know, there's only so much time. But uh,
1: Wait, what was your fall sport, Sloan?
3: I played golf for a little while.
1: Oh, okay. That's right. And you quit the golf team. That's, like, so
3: chill. Yeah, so I, I ended up retiring from golf after my sophomore year just because I was playing for a a fall hockey team that took up way too much time so I wouldn't have been able to play golf anyway but um, yeah so I I shut that down and then this year obviously it's not looking like we're having baseball at all so hockey was the only one at this point but I I, so my name has been out that way in terms of you know being a a bit of a student athlete in the town but I've certainly been you know I I think I was at like a a hair salon or something maybe and this woman heard me coming in and I, I had no clue who she was and she was like, Wait, are you Eli Sloven? I was like, Yeah, that would be me and she somehow knew who I was from maybe just going to games and stuff like that. I, I've been a big proponent of trying to get students to go to high school games and that we did a a tremendous job with that this year along with the the football team and the success that they had. Um, but so I, my name is out there in a lot of different capacities and I mean obviously my parents both work for the school district so I I try to keep it as as clean as I can for their sake but uh, I, I've I think all my accounts on the internet are public my Instagram's a public account my Twitter's a public a account burner. and I actually I was, before I was say,
1: do you have a burner uh,
3: you know I I made one a while ago that wasn't even really a burner. I was trying to start a brand, and then I forgot the password. So I, I don't currently have a burner. Um, I, I wouldn't mind. It's not a bad idea, you know. It's it's not a bad move, but I, I don't currently have one, no.
1: I mean, Sage is basically, it's not a burner, but it's anonymous insofar as, like, anyone who I get to know knows who I am, but I, I just, for professional reasons, try it. You know, I mean, at some point I realized, you know, there's been, and whatnot who like try to say things it's like in the end it's I respect people having respecting my privacy but I also recognize like I'm not hiding myself if you if you slide into the DMs it's like people know who I am it's not a big deal but that being said um has the social media presence impacted your before you even tell us where you're going has the social media presence and the, the intense uh, urging of many in the UMass Twitter sphere influenced uh, your decision one way or the other, or are you basically making your decision off of what you need to do for you and what you're looking for?
3: So I, I would say, you know, obviously this past Wednesday was pretty – right? That was Wednesday. Or was it two days ago? I don't know. Whatever the day this week was where everyone was coming at me, I thought that was pretty <laughs> – pretty crazy. I mean, I I don't think that happens if we're in a time where sports are still ongoing. Um, But I I would say the internet probably hasn't really swayed my decision at all. Um, I'll just, i give you the rundown real quick. So, coming in, like going into the fall, actually this time last year, I don't even know, I think I didn't even want to go to college. I just wanted to be a bartender, but I was kind of, you know, uh, I don't know what was going on. I think I was having a midlife crisis at Junior year,
1: junior year is tough, man. It's been You got a lot of schoolwork. Like, you yeah. know, it's just like, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I understand that. It's sort of like, is this even what I want to do? I've never, you know, I've never, I've been pushed towards this all my life. Maybe I want to take a year off. My wife is a huge proponent and wants both of our kids to take a year off between college and go work and and, and, and do stuff. Um, so, um, by the way, I just got a second. Time from a listener of the show who informed me that the mayor of Northampton has coronavirus.
3: Uh, no way, really?
1: Uh, our thoughts are with him and a UMass alum uh, who sometimes will be at UMass games. So, David, we're thinking of you, and I hate to be crashed, but we, we've got to keep going with with the show. There's there's uh, Sloping is on the line, and I, my kid's going to wake up from the nap momentarily. But I hope it's not terribly serious. We're thinking of him. Uh, and uh, as a UMass alum, as a, as a major uh, presence in the local political scene, David, get better. Sloven, back to what you were saying. You're having a little bit of a quarter life crisis. You weren't sure if you wanted to go to college. Keep going.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, that's that's nuts. I certainly hope uh, the mayor of Northampton is is all right, and I'm sure they'll make a full recovery and and be good. But um, so yeah, so I really was not feeling it. I think it was a lot of different things. And then eventually I came to my senses and I was like, wait, I would absolutely love to go to college. That's, you know, I'm a huge college sports fan. How can I not end up wanting to do that? So over the summer, I, um, and I, I've, you know, not to toot my own horn, I'm just saying the facts. I've had pretty good grades. Like I, I could go really to pretty pretty much anywhere I'd, I'd like I think but I, I didn't really so I mean
1: you could get into MIT
3: tomorrow I you know we could we could look into it probably not given the current circumstances of uh, the Corona deal um, but no, or no I could definitely not get into MIT absolutely not but in, in terms of places that I wanted to go I okay. I, Got it. Got I have it. a lot of friends that wanted to go to all these small colleges like the NESCAC and I definitely could have gotten into NESCAC schools but that just wasn't my thing you know what I mean so yep I yep. did some research, and I'm I'm big into sports, I'm big into business, and so I looked at these schools, I kind of wanted to stay in the Northeast, and uh, so there was one week over the summer, it was actually just crazy, it was like two weeks before we got back to school, and, uh, and so my mom's like, alright, you have to start visiting colleges, we're doing it, whatever. And so we go, on Monday, we pull up, we do a tour of UMass, which I gotta say was absolutely pitiful i could have given a better tour i was actually really disappointed because i was like you know i would want every single person that's on that tour to absolutely want to go to umass and love the school as much as i do right? yeah that's and that's, bad. so that's i was bad. that was disappointing for me but it, it is what it is so then the next day we we drive all the way up to syracuse and we go and visit syracuse and it was cool place I like the you know the I think it's the Whitman School of Business is all good stuff and then we uh, shoot down to Ithaca was the next one which is actually where Ryan Bamford went to school Um, and uh, so we're in Ithaca New York and we're like all right, well we can either go to State College Pennsylvania now or we can go later and we were in our like we have two Ford Explorers and a Chevy Vault which is like not a big Chevy vault, and so we were in the Chevy vault, and my mom is not really a small car person, the vault is actually my dad's, and so we were kind of dreading driving six hours in that thing, but we were like, if we don't go now, we might never go, so we literally call my dad, and we're like, we're sending it, we're going to state college, and we we drive all the way out to Pennsylvania, it was my first time being in Pennsylvania, and it, it poured all the way there, and it was horrible weather to drive in, and we thought we blew a tire, but we really didn't, and it was just this crazy trip. And we get there, and out of nowhere, I see Beaver Stadium, like, over the hills. And the, the context for why I was really looking at Penn State is that my dad was actually born in State College before uh, my grandpa got a job at, at UMass, and they moved to Amherst. Um, he lived there till he was about three, and one of my uncles just took a job, in state college so I was gonna have somebody around there you know what I mean like at the, the university no 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 at a at this this other company I don't know if you'd want me to say what no, it is so no that's fine you don't have to say where I just but uh no, fine. Keep going. Keep I going. think it's related to Penn State somehow and so it was like you know I knew he'd have a condo there I knew all his stuff and we get there and you know it was wicked cool campus everything was neat and I uh, I tried this ice cream in their creamery that was just wild right you know it was like life-changing stuff, and I really love Ice Cream. Yeah, I've, like, I've, I've spent
1: some time at Penn State, know the spot.
3: Yeah, so it was, it was wicked cool. Um, so we do a little tour there, and then we come back, and I think the next weekend, I took the SATs, and I was in good shape there, and so I knew essentially... I would be able to get into all the schools that I had looked at. And so I ended up, when it was all said and done, I applied to... I only applied to, like, five schools. I had friends who applied to 20 schools, all this stuff. And I didn't really want to go to any of these smaller colleges. I just wanted to go to, like, a... And it's pretty small, but I wanted to go to, like, a big sports school where I felt like I could... You know, expand my brand and, and get to know a lot of people and create a network and uh,
1: expand your brand that you don't, you don't you wouldn't have heard that in my day people would not have used language of that nature but look I get what you're trying to do I respect it
3: yeah so so I ended up applying to UMass Penn State Syracuse Ithaca and then I found out like somehow watching some ad or something that Suffolk, offered uh, $10 tickets to the Bruins and Celtics and Red Sox if the games (laughs) don't get sold out. So that was like automatic, throwing that that one. Um, Um, And I did it all. I applied early to to everywhere, I think, because I wanted to get it all done before hockey season. So I heard back from UMass. I got into Eisenberg around like December 7th, I think, which was pretty cool. And I had heard back from Suffolk. Like I got in there. They gave me like the whole honors college, everything. But I didn't really want to be right in Boston. You know what I mean? That didn't really seem like my thing. Um, and then I actually heard back from Ithaca on my birthday. That was pretty cool. I got into there. And then I think a week later, I heard back from Penn State and I had gotten into Penn State. And all the while, I knew I wasn't hearing back from – I got to talk about Syracuse real quick because somebody asked why that didn't make the cut. Um I I had known that I wasn't hearing back from them until like March or whatever and so I was like okay that's fine and then recently like probably three weeks ago and they, they were pretty much already out of the running at this point because I, I actually you know just it wasn't where I, I ended up wanting to go um, but I got this email saying that my application was incomplete and I'm like what what is that there's no way that's true. And my mom comes in and we're looking at it and she's like, oh, yeah, I definitely forgot to turn in the, the CSS form. So it, it comes to to be that I wouldn't have gotten any financial aid at Syracuse, which I, I didn't really anywhere. But, it, you know, that was definitely a place that if I was going to go there, I was going to need some financial aid. So that was immediately ruled out. And Suffolk was a little small. Ithaca was a little small. So that's what brought me to, you know, the Penn State UMass decision.
1: Before we get to the, the decision here, uh, you know, college advising for someone like you. The other schools I would have included that sort of fit the, the bill. If your if your grades were as good as you say and you were already in Ithaca, I would have. I'm surprised you didn't take a look at Cornell. But it's not much of a sports school, so I wouldn't have advised in the first place. I'm just noting because neither is Ithaca. Uh, in fact, it's, at least Cornell has like top ten hockey a lot of years. Uh, but also, University of Maryland, and maybe if the grades were there and you still want to be sort of in this part of the country, uh, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and finally, in the same vein, uh, Northeast college sports, whatever, I would have thrown in Rutgers, which is on the rise as well.
3: Yeah, so I actually I, – I was told to apply to all of those, and Rutgers I just could not do because it's like, you know, New Jersey, New York. It was just I, – I couldn't have done it. And then um, UVA was definitely on my list, and then I, I just decided not to apply there. I honestly – I don't really remember what the reasoning was, but there was it, – it came down to the, the five that I applied to. There was definitely a thought-out process when I, I made Maryland? those calls. No No Maryland? No, you know, I one of my close friends that I play baseball with, or not? I I don't. This kid's way above my pay rate. He's actually a, a sophomore right now. He uh, he just committed to play at Maryland, but um, really, an Amherst kid? Yeah. So he well, he was an Amherst kid, and then like going into the second semester, he moved to Connecticut because his dad got a job at UConn. So. Um, wow. His older brother actually plays baseball at Amherst College. I played with him in Little League. We won a championship. It was great stuff. But that Maryland was just like, you know, if I was going to a Big Ten school, it was really it was going to be Penn State is where what I was thinking at that point. You know what I mean? Just because I had always kind of followed their football program. And I don't know. I just eh, – I would never been to Maryland. I wasn't really feeling it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And,
1: and UConn was out because of the UMass. UConn oh, obviously, Dynamo. yeah.
3: No, so I – sure. my – the lady that was like the school counselor or whatever told me I had to apply to UConn, uh, BU, Northeastern, and like Loyola, and uh, I think uh, what was the other one like UNH. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not applying to any hockey schools that aren't in yeah. Mass. Like that so just down. wasn't happening. So sure,
1: sure. So that did factor in your decision in terms of. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. If I if I have been rooting against the school my entire life, I was not going to go there.
1: I got into BU out of... I wasn't going to go because... I, I, but it had nothing to do with hockey. And I think I, like, didn't get... I got into, like, their, like some, like, two-year program where you had to transfer into the main school. I was like, I'm kind of pissed. I thought I was, I deserved to get into whatever. That's long. That's, like, many years ago. But I, I did not go to BU. Did not apply to Northeastern. Um... Needless to say, we've come to this, we've expressed the the rationale for both. Um, I will tell you my, I've told you a lot about my UMass stories, obviously, over the years, and just lots of friends who went there, and I I grew up around it, and Penn State, my first experience at Penn State was, the summer before my senior year of college, or high school, rather, I went to this, like, my parents really wanted me to do something, like, and not, you know, like, some sort of, like, something quasi-enrichment related. So I think my grandfather left me a little money to do this, which was really nice. And I went to this great program, life-changing program at Georgetown. Uh, It was like a summer study of like politics for like a month. It was really interesting. Totally expanded my horizons in terms of just what was out in the world and, uh, you know, that I could hang with some of these rich kids from like you know fancy towns in the suburbs of New York and Boston and New Orleans and all around the country and I met my first girlfriend there first serious girlfriend you know I dated girls in earlier high school we stayed together for much of my senior year she went off to Northwestern her sister years later would become a Lionette which is a dance team member at Penn State and in 2010 Two years after I graduated college, I, I went with a couple buddies to meet up with this. You know, at this point, she and I were like friends. We weren't, you know, romantically linked anyway, but we were still, we stayed friends. And so I went out her sister's senior year and we saw Paterno's 400th win against Northwestern. No and, way. And stayed, which was since not, doesn't count, uh, and stayed in the um, Lionette House. So very good times uh, there.
3: Well, I'll tell you what, it it doesn't count, but your experience must have been absolutely incredible. I mean, just the game day atmosphere must have been nuts. It was a
1: great, great vibes, And I will say I had a lot of doubts about Penn State prior to that trip. I just just never quite got the Penn State thing because New York City is loaded with Penn State alums and they have a little bit of a cultish aspect. And I kind of just thought it was like a... I didn't realize how fun of a town it was. State College, though, it's in the middle of nowhere. Good vibes, good energy, lots going on. Um, then, of course, the next year was the Penn State uh, fiasco, and that left a bad taste in my mouth for a variety of reasons. Um, you, of course, can't fault anyone who's there now. It's been, I mean, you during that scandal were I
3: watched nine. the entire thing on ESPN. I watched the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, thing.
1: You, were, you were like nine. I mean, I was three years out of out of college, you know, like I, I, I remember it, you know, I, you know, so for me, it was it spoke to a lot about of the problems in, in big time college athletics, and I kind of felt ethically torn about how much how invested I was in this whole enterprise and just the craziness of it because that, you know, whatever. The point is, um, I still make fun of Penn State for that because I think some vile things went on there, but I also recognize the. Merits of the university. There's a very good alumni network. They're very connected. There's a lot going on in the town. It's a, it's a fun vibe. I, I, I get I get the appeal of the place, um, and I will probably make fun of you if you go there. But mostly, mostly in uh, in good good spirits. Um, and so, with with that being said, I'm getting that off my chest. So you understand. You know, you always have a friend in me. But at the same time. You know, it'll, it will alter the manner in which I interact. I have predicted that you're going there. Most people who think you're not going there, my buddy Jack, who is a one time co host of the show, Michigan guy, predicted that you'd definitely be going to UMass. I said, I don't think so. Um, that's my preface, Sloven. However you want to announce it, you have the floor.
3: Oh geez. Okay, so I have the floor now. Um, well, here's the deal. So I, uh, like I said, I got in. It was the main campus, the whole thing at Penn State, and we were supposedly going on. My family and I we were going to be going on this trip to Scotland over the summer, right? So that like ruled out any kind of summer courses that I I would have been able to take, um, you know, at that particular place. And they, when I got in, it was under the caveat that. They wanted me to do, like, this, uh, because I was some, you know, I was an out-of-state kid trying to get into their business school. They wanted me to do, like, a a summer leap program, and it was an extra 12 grand, which I obviously was not psyched about, just because that's more money I'd have to spend, and I was going away. What's up?
1: you get course credits?
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. You totally get credit. So it ends up. It, it would have been worth it, but I. I. It had been shut down anyway because I was going to Scotland, and then obviously we have the coronavirus, and it looks like all of a sudden we're not going to Scotland, and so my perspective on everything absolutely shifts. Um, so I was. I was thinking about it, and it. It all. You know, like you said, you predicted I'd go there, and then I. I was sitting at home one day. Watching like you know, I always watch this particular YouTube video that's probably from like 2015 that uh, you know is about how UMass basketball is back and this whole thing. And I'm sitting there, and and you know UMass is probably academically at this point their their business school is probably a better school anyway, and their you know average income after college or starting salary is a little bit higher. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like. Dude, you've been a diehard UMass fan since you were three years old. You literally, for probably eight months, I didn't answer to anything other than Anthony Anderson 4-3. Like, someone tried to call me Eli, my neighbor, and I just didn't respond. And he was like, what is going on with this kid? I, just, I was because you know, I wanted to be called Anthony Anderson 4-3, which, looking back, is some real psycho stuff. And those were bleak years, man. Bleak oh, years. bleak. Absolutely, absolutely bleak. And I actually... Yeah, it was we had season tickets, and then I think after a little while we shut it down. But obviously, once I turned eight, we we fired that all back up. Um, oh yeah, they were bleak. So so anyway, I'm sitting there watching the video, and I'm like, they they got this kid Trey Mitchell. They got you know all these dudes, John Bugs. I feel like is could could be a real guy, Debaje Walker, and I'd be like, you know, if I leave and. All of a sudden, they make the NCAA tournament for the second time ever in my life. Like, I would just absolutely never be able to forgive myself. So that pretty much is is what it came down to. Is I I was like, and it's not even it had nothing to do with Twitter, right? I was just like, I it's a better school. I've lived in Amherst my whole life, but I'll live on campus, and it's that whole thing. And I was like. If I left, I'd be missing the renaissance of UMass sports, which I truly believe that we're entering. So I, I guess my official decision, which I, I put in the deposit on Wednesday, is that um, I'm going to UMass. I'm going to be a Eisenberg School of Management dude, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm pretty excited, and wow. that's where we're at that, that. That,
1: came, that came as a pleasant surprise. I think you made the right decision. Um, I think, look... Um, the, the only thing that's really distinct, I think, about Penn State in this regard is probably those football games. It is a really unique experience. I would encourage you to my, – my wife is in the background saying you'd be supporting a bet possible. Yeah, I love it. I love it, yeah. Uh, what, I, what I would recommend for you is when UMass Football does their annual – whatever money you save in-state uh, on in-state tuition – and I presume it's a decent chunk. Oh,
3: it's yeah. Um, that was also definitely a factor, too, as I was yeah, like, well, we I'd be in less Yeah.
1: Put, put a little bit of that. In fact, your parents are going to listen to this, so I'm going to just say this to them. And I know this is something a parent doesn't necessarily want to hear, especially in these uncertain economic times. But provided things get back to normal at some point, put you, you should endow Eli with a few hundred dollars a year to take a road trip with the UMass football team one of those iconic sites, so that you at least have a taste of that, because it is really unique. And but I think seeing your team in that environment is even more unique. So they're going to Auburn, I think this year. I think they got Texas A and M. Yeah, Texas
3: A and M. I already locked that up. That was part of the deal. I said if I get be Mass, I'm going to the Texas A and M game. So that one's that one's in. Oh
1: wow! So you're already you're already thinking in these terms. So oh, I totally, think that that's, absolutely. That's, that's good. And I also think one real, one of the real benefits in terms of UMass and UMass Athletics and your fandom and all that is that you, first of all you already have incredible uh, footholds in the athletic department if you want to intern and in, on the sports side of things you have networks that you can do that too and from pure fandom perspective you serve as an essential ambassador already because you know the traditions you know some of these things and you'll still get the experience of being a student there it will be different you know yeah. but you will uh you will be able to sort of introduce your friends to UMass fandom. And as that become as the team becomes better and as the that becomes more socialized, you will help sort of spread this program. Whereas at Penn State, fan culture is so incredibly cemented already that, you know, sort of like helping grow a fan base at a place that already has 100,000 people a game, it just isn't as unique. So I, I think what's the uh, the mantra that, as they say at UMass like be different or whatever uh,
3: revolutionary be revolutionary
1: sure apply that mantra to your fandom uh, at a time in which big things are expected and you'll also already have the benefit of all of UMass Twitter being in your in your networks and connecting you to people regardless of what you want to do um, and my wife is making jokes lots of cool people at UMass Twitter there are, honey. There are. She, she says there are. She, maybe yeah, you know,
3: my, my mom's laughing at me right now from upstairs. She, I think she's very much so aligned with your wife. <laughs>
1: uh, look, I mean, I, I've I've wrestled with that, and I, 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 you know, I, there was a point, Glovin, where I was, I was, I would say I was fairly similar to you in high school, and college, and beyond. Very social, extroverted, you know, sort of, you know, they me in my hometown, like, the, the local politician would call me Mr. Mayor, I, I was, the, uh, you know, I, I liked the, I had to gift of gab, I would rub hands with people, and so initially, my foray into UMass fandom, I always felt, like, a little bit, like, eh, like, I'm not one of these, like, fanboys who's, like, kind of weird, and just, like, you know, this big nerd, and you know, and, and as I got older, and grew more comfortable with that fandom, I was just, like, I don't care, like, whatever that's part of my that's a part of my identity i have other parts of my identity and you know there is a type you know like whatever anyone who has the number had the number of message board posts i did you know you're you're thinking of perhaps a different type and there are some of those types and those types are wonderful too the point is that you know you you got to uh you got to live your life and you got to have your passions unapologetically and if you have you at least have a far better excuse than i do because you'll be going to UMass, and people for the rest of your life won't say, "Wow, it's so weird that you're so into." It. And you'll have to then go back,
3: "Oh, well, when I was a kid in Calipari." And yeah, of, yeah
1: you know, I you not have to have that. you just be—it'll be just accepted, you know, seen as sort of standard fanaticism. And uh, I, I envy that. And uh, we look forward just to, to following along your pursuit. And also, we look forward to having a fan, you know, a student insight into into some of these dynamics and, and helping work with you to, to spread some of this stuff in whatever ways we can and uh, we'll have you back on on the show as a, as a correspondent perhaps. There's lots of options here now that you're in the thick of things and getting ready for what will be undoubtedly an exciting several years and you can always go somewhere else for grad school.
3: That Yeah, that was also one of the things that it came down to was I was like well, you know, the, the AD at Penn State actually went to UMass so Maybe if I figured something out, I could end up going to grad school there and maybe getting a job or something like that. But uh, no, I, I absolutely I, – I get what you're saying there in terms of growing fandom and growing fan bases. I, I fully intend to like change the culture around here in my time. Like that's – that was one of the things that I, I noticed when I was at Syracuse or I was in State College is like these entire communities – and I think I tweeted about it earlier in the year. It's yeah. like, you know, uh, they're just – Everyone's involved, and I, I don't know that we'll ever reach that here. But I certainly well, we did have
1: that when I was a kid. I mean, that's where my fandom comes from, right? Like, we may never get back to that, but but the uh, you know that that's the that's the dream, and that was what it was like. I mean, just to give you context, when I was a kid, like all along Route Nine going into Amherst, every hotel or you know, like the signs out front, like that say, yeah. you know, at the Econoline Lodge, it's like HBO, free HBO all that stuff would say like I have vivid memories it, like welcome Dickie V you know like beep wake or whatever like it was that big that you've asked and so it doesn't get seared in your mind for this long in this deep away if it's not like that And I'm not saying to be back to that but that's there's a model there and I'm glad you've seen what that looks like in other towns I'll be right there buddy I,
3: Sullivan I gotta go. Hey, uh, thank you for having me. It was, it was a good time. And uh, tell tell your kids, everybody. Hope they're they're doing well. And uh, good yeah, doing it. absolutely. It. Okay. Peace. Sounds good. Bye.